We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Welcome to On The Way Home. If you're looking for a different podcast, you're in the wrong space. But if you are interested in the best and the brightest, talking to me about housing, homelessness, justice, health, all these really, really cool things that make our world turn. You are in the right place. Every week on this podcast, On The Way Home, uh, maybe you're listening to it On The Way Home or with a coffee, etc. You're going to learn a lot. I know I do. I've been in this field a long time. But every week I learn something new and it's really, really cool. Uh, we have experts and this podcast gives me a great deal of hope for the future because we're facing some massive challenges right now uh, in the social services sector. But... We are very hopeful because we have some brilliant people across Canada, around Ontario, uh, in BC, on the East Coast, in the middle of Canada, in the prairies, and around the world as well. We've had guests as far as Australia, guests from Finland, where they have declared they've ended homelessness, which is really, really cool. They were, and that was not a one-year task. It was over about 25 years. Uh, we've had guests from Norway and the U.S. It's very, very cool. So... Sit tight and listen in. But first, before we get to our amazing guest today, let me tell you a little bit about Blue Door, my organization. So Blue Door is an organization that is rooted in York Region. Uh, our primary focus from the start was to prevent and end homelessness. But we knew, we've we found as we've gone along, it's pretty complex, right? There's pieces around supporting uh, our clients with health services that they might not have access to. Um, in developing housing, and we'll talk somewhat a little bit more about that today, uh, and as well, real employment um, opportunities, I say real employment opportunities that pay a living wage, that are meaningful, that actually lift people out of poverty. And we've learned not just to react to homelessness after it's already happened, but to think a little more upstream with brilliant people like Dr. Stephen Gates and Melanie Redman uh, from Away Home Canada and others who have had a huge focus on uh, the prevention of homelessness. You can't end it if you don't prevent it from starting in the first place. So we, we do all that kind of work uh, and focus on that in uh, York Region. We stretch our Construct program, our Constructor Social Enterprise into Durham and Peel and have worked with amazing folks at the Home Depot Foundation Canada on a program called TradeWorks where programs like Construct, Construction Social Enterprises are supported. We come together to share resources across the country. So very, very cool stuff happening at Blue Door. And this podcast would not be possible without our friends at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. They do great work, nationally leading work. They have something called the Built for Zero campaign. If you want to be a Built for Zero community, check out their website at caeh.ca. And really, they'll work with communities to try and get you to a functional zero where uh, people are not experiencing homelessness because you have enough services to support anyone who needs them. And it's a lot deeper than that. I'm not doing it justice. Check out their website. Get them out. They have brilliant people at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. And 
they are putting on a massive conference in November. Uh, you can either go virtually or for the first time in a couple of years, you can attend in person. This year it's in Toronto. They shifted all over Canada. It's the largest of its kind in this sector. They have some brilliant, brilliant speakers um, and workshops there. So check it out at ceh.ca. Uh, the earlier you register, if you register before August 12th, this podcast may or may not drop before then, but there's an early bird discount. But even then afterwards, it's still very, very reasonable. Um, and if you can't go in person, sign up virtually and pick the sessions you want to attend. So that's happening at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Uh, today, we have a very special guest. I think if you've heard me talk before um, about some of our challenges in this sector, it is that lack of truly affordable housing. So rent geared to income. Uh, my team at Blue Door, our colleagues across the region, our colleagues across the country, we many of our clients are on a very limited income. Uh, recently, the Globe and Mail talked about uh, if the threshold is 30% of your income spent on housing, that's really the, the max you should spend, uh, you would need an income of a household income of $90,000 a year to afford a one bedroom apartment. Uh, for many people in social assistance in Ontario, they have an income of $700 a month or about $8,000 in total with all the supports a year. And if you're um, receiving ODSP, which is a uh, disability uh, supports, that's about $13,000 a year. So you see there's a massive gap. So we have to be creative in this sector. Uh, we have to make sure we're securing more affordable housing. Um, what we call maybe social um, purpose-built real estate, right, going forward. So today I have with me, and, and I've, I've said it about three times with his last name. So I'm going to apologize to Maddie uh, right away. I'm Maddie Simiatiki. Uh, How was that, Maddie? Is that good? Perfect. Oh, he gave, gave me the thought. So we have Maddie Sebatiki. He's the director of Infrastructure Institute and the professor of geography and planning at U of T. His work focuses on delivering large scale infrastructure projects, evidence based infrastructure. And we've heard a lot about evidence really, really matters, folks. Uh, investment decisions and effective integration of infrastructure into the fabric of cities. We're going to talk about that today, too. Maddie consults widely on infrastructure policy. And we've also learned that. Housing or lack of affordable housing is a result of bad policy. Policy matters, folks. He consults on infrastructure policy and is a frequent media commentator on infrastructure at City Planning. Maddie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you. We ask the same first question to every guest, and we get multiple different answers with some th underlying themes that come through it. Maddie, what does home mean to you? Home means many different things. You know, for me, uh, at, at its base level, it's, it's deeply emotional and it's, it's deeply personal. I mean, home is the place that uh, you can uh, walk through uh, in the dark because you know the spaces so well. Uh, you can get, you know, without stubbing your toe. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the place where you can picture your loved ones uh, or important, important moments of your life in that space. Uh, so on one level, it's deeply uh, emotional. Uh, then uh, at, at another level, it's more than bricks and mortar. It's home is also about relationships and it's relationships inside the home and home is also about community and for many of us when we think of our home it's not just the building itself it's everything around it it's the neighbors it's uh the spaces uh the, the parks it's the but the people it's really in the people and, and around them and then finally and i think this is the most challenging part uh, in our current day and age home has also been thought of as a financial asset and uh, and, and it's very much part of people's uh, financial uh, portfolio and their, and, and their 
uh, financial health and picture. And so many people are also using their home as, uh, in some cases, uh, their uh, lender as they borrow against their home, and in some cases, as their retirement saving plan uh, for those who own. And in cases of renting, um, uh, people are feeling deep pressure as the price of rents uh, go up. Uh, and, and, and they face issues like rent eviction. So home has also a very deep financial picture to it as well. So it's a complicated, uh, the dynamic of what home means then is not simple. It's, it's really multifaceted. And I think that's why this space uh, has all these complicated uh, uh, Absolutely. I love a lot of what you were saying there when you're talking about uh, knowing it in the dark. It is that, and no one's ever used that before. It is that sense of the familiar, when I'm comfortable, that familiar, uh, I love we talk about community. Mm -hmm. If we look at in 2017, uh, Jesse Thistle and the Observatory on Homelessness put out an Indigenous definition of homelessness that spoke more about the relationship aspect of it and community and, and relationship to the land, etc. And, and I, I love what you're, you know, um, we've learned in the sector too, uh, so we learn from doing things wrong, unfortunately, sometimes, but we learn. Um, where we put people into housing and they'd be back at emergency shelter. And it's because we didn't help create that sense of community around them. They had community at the shelter and then we put them in housing where they were isolated alone. No one was asking questions. So that sense of what we've learned now is that we try and integrate them in. But that sense of community is huge into stabilizing housing. And, and lastly, what you're saying about housing as a commodity. Unfortunately, years and years ago, people wouldn't say, that wasn't really a main fixture as a commodity. A home was your, your kind of all those things you mentioned, and, and it has more and more through the financialization of housing become that commodity. Uh, and I was saying today on an earlier podcast where people, Canadians are almost ownership obsessed. If you don't own your home, there's a problem. And, and in most parts or many parts of the world, it's just not, I mean, no one owns their home. They rent for life and it's not a, they don't see that as, as the way forward, right? But some, some great themes in there. So thank you for sharing. Now we are, we are in uh, housing. Go ahead. You know, I have, I was gonna say, I have so many thoughts on even just what you said. Like it, it get, you, get, you get me thinking about how we planned communities over the years and how um, uh, we, we often, especially in, in rental communities, pictured them as being very transient. And so we would do redevelopments where we where where planners and, and politicians would move people around uh, and and not understand that it's not just the physical bricks and mortar of communities but it's 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 the ties that 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 build up over years and and so the physical uh state of buildings may have worn down but the community ties were very strong uh and and as those get dispersed and as, as those weren't considered sufficiently i mean we really undermine uh the strength of networks and the strength of what made uh, a pride of place and i think we're learning a lot more even as we start to do developments like we're starting to learn and as we start to focus on uh on on issues of homelessness that that it's the connections as well as as the physical spaces that are really important to people and i think that's to me seems like a, a critical theme uh, uh in this sector uh is 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 thinking holistically about what home is so i'm really pleased that we're you know starting at that point uh, and maybe unpacking this and and the bricks and mortar have to be safe and they have the building, the physical plant has to be maintained. There's no doubt about that. But we have to also think about this in a much more holistic way and about the wraparound services that enable people to be successful. In yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's so funny when you talk about planning and I think of good examples of that. Like, so you have your, where we didn't plan so much. Uh, it quite often is when you, you say, all right, we're going to make this whole block, 
So you look at Regent Park as an example, right? You can't take all the units and make them deeply affordable social housing. You looked at a mixed and, and then replanning that. And I, I again, planning some of my background, but I look at the replanning of that, all the different things they did to not make it housing, but make it a community, mixed income, a community center, different feel to it. And I think that's a good example of that. Can you think of other, are there other examples of good planning or, and maybe you could share one that, that needs to be fixed? We're, you know, we're learning uh, each time we do this and Regent Park, uh, the redevelopment has a contentious history. And I think, you know, and, 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 and mixed reviews uh, on what people say about it. But I think where it's been successful for me is the social infrastructure was built uh, and was built in a very serious way and, and at a high quality. So, you know, you have a park at its core, you have the swimming pool, uh, the Pam McConnell swimming pool, which is a stunning facility. Um, and you have uh, new parks facilities, you have Dixon Hall, which has a training uh, center there. Um, they really focused heavily on, uh, on making sure that the social spaces are present. Uh, and then also the mix, the mix of housing, I think is key. And what's critical then is again it's the bricks and mortar and, and i think the next step is making sure that everyone feels comfortable in those spaces and that's you know i think there's there's ongoing work that's being done and as the community um, uh, develops and as 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 as, as, as people settle uh, and resettle uh, that that work is happening and those spaces are becoming lived in they're 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 turning from like development spaces to really community spaces and you can you can see and feel it and that's a, that's an ongoing process and i think we've learned a lot more about how to do that, about how to make sure that people have the right to return and what that right of return actually means. We're now seeing projects with Alexandra Park or uh, um, uh, and, and some of the other ones that are happening uh, across uh, Lawrence Heights, some of the other ones that are happening across the region where we're trying to learn and it's, you know, these, we, you know, these, these we, we learn as we go and, and they're not, they're not always perfect and we get pushback. And I think that pushback is ideally when the system works, people learn from it and uh, go to make it better. But it's, it's, I, I, I think what, what we're saying here is, is, is the element of community it, it, it is, so, uh, is so important, even as we're rebuilding these. Absolutely. Spaces. You mentioned something else that I hadn't thought of till recently in talking to uh, someone who's developing housing. And you mentioned the crumbling, kind of crumbling infrastructure. I was talking to uh, Tim Richter recently. He said, we actually have less affordable housing now um, than we did in 2015. He said, because we're building a lot, but we are losing it faster than we're building it. And, and so with this builder, when we talk about building and infrastructure, we're like, all right, uh, you hear words like modular, we could get it up in half the time. It's a great build. Uh, it's really energy efficient, that kind of thing. We're reducing the carbon footprint. But what the, this group was talking about, they said, we're a little more costly up front, but we're building buildings that will last 80 years where you don't have to sink. Because many of us, just because of lack of resources and the social services, we are not planning to replace that building in 40 years or to have that money to do, you know, to, to keep it up, as you said. So it's not crumbling, right? So we're not losing that. I never really thought of that until now. And I don't think many of us do it. We're a little more short-sighted and we need housing we need it now and we need it as cheaply as possible you know it's it, it's really stunning when you think about it that way that you know between uh units coming out of tchc as they've fallen into such disrepair uh that you know that that they can't be lived in and that's that's happened uh as well as um 
uh, units that were previously affordable in, uh, in single room occupancy hotels and other types of housing being yeah. taken off of the uh, rental market and for low, low income rental and rent evictions. I mean, we are absolutely losing uh, that that um, uh, that low that that affordable housing that was kind of the bedrock. We're, we are losing units, and it's really expensive to build new units. You're absolutely right about that. And the other piece of this is the main operations and maintenance. And this is where I put my infrastructure hat on because with, when you think about infrastructure, like a subway or a bridge or a, or a highway, like that has to be maintained every single year, year on year, over year. Uh, so that it doesn't become unsafe and you don't have uh, disasters. And sometimes with housing, we tend to focus on the upfront costs and then figure that like the main, the operation and maintenance is going to kind of take care of itself or it'll be, it'll be done kind of just like, uh, you know, as a natural right. And it doesn't work that way. And it, it, infrastructure, and just like with infrastructure, housing depreciates over time. Uh, and it needs constant awareness and constant upkeep. And without that, uh, you will, uh, over time, these buildings will fall into disrepair and the structure in them that you know the pipes and the boilers and the, the, the heaters and everything else will uh, will 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 fail and you know, we're, we're in a spot now where we haven't kept up the governments haven't provided sufficient money especially for the low-income portfolios uh, or the or the uh, uh, public housing portfolios and uh, yeah we're, we're, lo- we're actually losing units even as we're racing well not only are they crumbling but you brought up something there and like I said I'm always learning on this podcast we had a guest on uh, from Ottawa, and she was talking that for every new build, we're losing 15 to the private market of affordable housing, right? Just buying it up. We saw it recently in, in York Region with uh, in Aurora, where there's a nineplex that was affordable. It wasn't affordable, like it, it, when we looked at the rents, they just hadn't increased. So it was truly affordable. But what the realtor said, look, someone's going to buy this. They're going to pump a lot of money into it, evict the tenants, and, and those rents will no longer be affordable. So there's in a, pl- a small town like Aurora to lose nine units of affordable housing is huge, right? And it happens all the time at that rate of 15 to one. Uh, so, so that begs my next question, right? We can't, this is a, we're very positive on this podcast. We have big challenges, but let's talk about, you know, if we're going to make our way out of this housing crisis, there's, we, we need creativity, right? Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the trends and opportunities in creative uh, mixed use buildings that blend public, private, and nonprofit services? So creative mixed-use buildings are, uh, are in many ways a made in Greater Toronto solution. Uh, they are an approach to blending large-scale public, private, and nonprofit uh, uh, uses into the same building. And we've been doing these now in this region uh, for, for many years. It's kind of flown under the radar. And I can give you a few examples that kind of make this very tangible. Um, we have examples of for example, uh, North Toronto Collegiate Institute, which has a, a high school with two condominiums uh, up above. Uh, we have examples with uh, arts and culture facilities like Artscape, uh, which has provided uh, housing for artists uh, in buildings uh, on top of rec centers and other in other spaces. Uh, and I think the examples that are pushing the envelope in the social services, and I think in a really important direction, are projects uh, like the Red Door Shelter, uh, which is uh, at Queen Street in Logan and is a um, and is is a, a, a homeless shelter for women and families built into the side of an upscale condo. Uh, with retail on the main floor. And uh, it's really, that one is really quite a remarkable building uh, to, uh, to visit because what you see is that actually uh, the way that the, 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 the building is, it's, it's, it's a lovely building uh, and the homeless shelter fits, fits very seamlessly into that, uh, into that space uh, and, into, and, and into that community. 
that was a building that the homeless shelter, just to give you a bit of the background there, the homeless shelter uh, had been in an old church and the church was going to sell because the congregation had dwindled. Uh, and so um, the homeless shelter, uh, ideally at the time, wanted to buy the building and just stay in uh, the uh, in, in the church. And this will be familiar for many people who operate social services. The church building really wasn't fit for purpose. Like it was not a nice place to provide services for people who were, uh, you know, who were uh, uh, fleeing situations of violence or, or needed emergency housing. And yet they were, this organization was doing amazing work in that space. And their first uh, initial uh, uh, desire would have been to just re renovate, own the church outright and stay in there. And for a variety of reasons, that wasn't viable. And they ended up having to do a partnership and ending up in a partnership with this private developer and with the city involved as a funding partner. And they've ended up with a, a space where the units are so much nicer and, and, and single units with, with their own washrooms, uh, just like a brighter space, a, a newer space, and a space where they can now, uh, where they can now provide their services from. And, and so that's just an example of like this idea of the creative mixed use that yes, uh, there, there's a private development on that site, the homeless shelter is also very much on that site as well and providing service to their clients. And uh, we're seeing that as well now with Eva's Phoenix at the Waterworks uh, building downtown and a bunch of other projects. So this is an approach to city building that, 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 that you recognize that our cities are growing and changing and, de and development and private development is going to happen. And you leverage some of the value so that the profit accrues, yes, some of it to the private sector, but a lot of it gets reinvested in the public uh, and in the public interest and in affordable housing so that people have places. That's yeah, it's very, very smart. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. And, and I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's much like when I think of Red Door, it is not a purpose built. That's not what it was built for, right? It was a church. It was built for that purpose. And you're trying to get that uh square peg into the round hole it's it's really hard but when you're building new you get to think about all that what are the uses now and into the future it is purposely built for that use uh much nicer and the mix too was great uh I'll give an example in york region was the was housing new york actually did that it wasn't private public but what they did is they did uh, eight floors i believe of uh, housing and then behind that they put 360 kids in uh, they had a drop-in center, they had some apartments, they had an emergency. So it wasn't the emergency housing site, it was a hub of activity, right? And, and when you first see the building, you see the apartments. And, and the, the, the way that what they did with the apartments was really kind of neat too, is they had 10 bands of income. So, so many apartments in this band, so many apartments in this, and so on. And it was mostly for seniors. And the seniors and the youth have turned out to be a great mix, right? They just mix well. Um, and when you drive by that, no one would ever know that's what it is and, and what the purpose is behind there. They weren't trying to hide anything, but it was just a brilliant mix. And it's used as a good example of being creative and how you do things. And they hadn't thought of that, but they did what you were saying, where they said, maybe we could bump this up two levels to put in this, this need if we're going to buy the land already. And, and so in, in, you know, thinking through that, I had never thought about this before. 
uh, with municipalities. You mentioned a lot of the places, but a lot of um, buildings owned by municipalities, because people think there's not a lot of land. We're landlocked in Toronto or York or wherever they are in Calgary. There might not be a lot of land. However, we never think of the airspace, so we don't think of fire stations that are two stories and EMS buildings, right? And, and that kind of thing. Is that a possibility in being creative, using some of that airspace? You're thinking in exactly the way, same way as uh, it has been on my mind. I mean, if you go around our city, you walk, you bicycle, you take public transit, you drive, I mean, you can see what a school looks like in this, uh, in, in our communities. You can see what a community center, uh, you know, or, or arts and culture facility. Most of them are two-story buildings. And if you're in a suburban area, they're surrounded by parking lots. Um, there is, you know, this idea that we're landlocked and don't have anywhere to build is, I think, uh, is, is, is not factoring in all of the potential to be vertical. And our cities are already growing upwards and developers have realized that that's the main way you can make a lot of money is by upping the intensity and building a, a greater density. And I think as for those of us who are focused uh, on affordable housing and on the public realm, we can use those same tools and techniques, those same ideas of how density brings value, but capture that value and invest it in affordable housing and ideally deeply affordable housing. So. To give you some examples, we did a study recently on uh, on fire stations, exactly fire stations, saying like, why does a fire station have to be a two-story building uh, surrounded by a parking lot? Uh, in, this, in, the, in the city of Toronto, um, there are over 100 uh, fire stations and emergency service posts. So that's fire stations and ambulance posts. Uh, you know, could we integrate other uses on top of them? They've done this in Vancouver. They've done this uh, in uh, Calgary, they've done this in Washington, D.C. Why does a fire station have to be a two-story building? And so we proposed uh, a building that would have fire station on the first two floors uh, with, with the, you know, the, the, the hall for the firefighters. And then up above, we could put affordable housing and we could really build, on, depending on how dense uh, it can go, depending on the site, you could build a lot of affordable, affordable housing just on top of the um, just on top of fire stations. And then just think about what our rec centers or our libraries sites look like. I mean, there are so many sites in that pub are already publicly owned. That's the amazing part of this. You don't have to uh, uh, wrangle with developers. These are publicly owned and many of them are transit on transit um, corridors already. They're beautiful sites. To give you one other example, uh, we also have been looking at private land holdings. So uh, again, for people who say we're landlocked, think about what a, a grocery store typically looks like in this region uh you know for many of the grocery stores are again a one-story building often a building that was built in the 50s or 60s surrounded by acres of parking uh we did a study that looked at six six retailers just six retailers uh, uh loblaws sobeys uh, metro canadian tire the beer store uh and ikea and we did a calculation of how much housing could go just on their sites in, in toronto and we came up with sixty-eight thousand. Uh, units just on their sites and that's and then and if even 10 percent of those were affordable housing that's almost 7,000 units right there so you know we have to start thinking about city building differently and put affordability at the core and use the tools and techniques that developers have used over the years to 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 be to to, to be very successful themselves leverage those same techniques and tools to, so that the public can benefit and have spaces that are affordable. Wow, that blows my mind. I, I love that, the 68,000 just, and, and when, you know, because right now, I think the province is saying, or CMHC, sorry, was saying we're about 3 million short across Canada. 
Um, and of course, people ask, like, well, where are we going to do that? But I think of, that was just grocery stores. You mentioned libraries, community facilities, um, fire halls, and all the different, again, that, that could happen fairly quick because the land's there, they're municipally owned. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. So there are solutions, folks, that can happen fairly quick. We just have to be a little creative and think differently. And when we had, uh, we had Mark from uh, Housing Now Toronto on, and he was brilliant. He said, come for, come for a drive. I'll, I'll show you where we can do this. Um, he said, people are always, always amazed. I want to shift gears just a little bit, Maddie. Uh, just talk about, I mentioned good policy, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but how much does uh, good policy matter when it comes to infrastructure in a city? It makes a huge difference. Uh, it makes a difference. So, you know, I think of transportation policy, what type of uh, uh, transportation infrastructure are we investing in? Uh, are we creating spaces uh, for uh, public transit to be connected with housing, uh, for people to be able to walk safely and to cycle safely? So that's on the transportation side. The reason I start with transportation is because transportation is the other side of the housing coin. The housing and transportation are so tightly connected uh, and successful communities require great housing and that housing needs to be connected with where people can get around and ideally get around by transit, walking and cycling. Uh, so, so that's on the transit side. Housing, and housing is the same thing. I mean, we have a, a series of uh, exclusionary uh, uh, zoning policies that essentially make it almost impossible to build new housing in large swaths of our cities. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, this is around um, things like laneway housing or infill housing or uh, 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 garden suites uh, or, or fourplexes, you know, all of the types of gentle intensification strategies uh, that, that could really help uh, uh, make our communities a bit more intensive uh, and create, again, spaces for people to live. There's also the rooming house policies. You know, rooming houses have historically played a really important role as a space where people can live affordably. And uh, in this region, we've in many communities made it almost uh, impossible uh, by policy uh, for people to live in those circumstances. Of course, we need policy to make sure that those rooming houses, for example, are safe. Uh, and that they meet fire code, uh, you know, but we can do, but we, we've made it, and our response has been essentially to make it, uh, to outlaw them in, in much of the city. And so this is, this is the space for policy and people respond to policy and they respond to also to incentives uh, that are uh, incentives and disincentives. And I think our system has been set up at the moment to be very car oriented and in many cases to encourage development, uh, either a tall type of development, right? So high rise, uh, we call it tall and sprawl. You can you concentrate as much growth as you can in the nodes where you're able to build, or you sprawl around the periphery of the region, because again, that's a place that's uh, easier uh, to, to, to build as well. But it, you know that that missing middle, that infill development, we've made it very hard, and that's that's making it difficult for uh, for, for people to live in the communities uh, where they have connections and where they have all those networks uh, and all that social capital built up. Thanks for that. So let's talk about when you think of examples of, of uh, cities or communities that have um, implemented great policy it uh, does some cool stuff with infrastructure and innovation who's doing this yeah there's i mean there's a whole host of them and uh, uh you know i think of uh, minneapolis that ended single family zoning uh, helsinki is an example where they brought transit and land use together and then they they, they've really pushed to end homelessness. And I think the ambition uh, is critical. 
Um, then uh, Bogota has this idea around care blocks where they bring together all of their social services uh, around like uh, spaces for care, uh, which in, in, a, in, a, in a single block, and that can be walkable uh, for people who live in that neighborhood. We often call them community hubs. Uh, we had a program in Ontario for community hubs for many years that I think had a hard time actually turning the ideas into action. So, you know, there are other places that are doing it, but what I wanna say too is, you know, often in this region, my sense is we look elsewhere and we say, if only we could be, we could do what they do in Helsinki or in uh, Stockholm or in, you know, London or in Bogota or in Portland or Vancouver, we would, we would be able to get to a better place. And I think there's some, I think we should learn from others. I think also we can lead. And I think we shouldn't, uh, you know, the idea that like, we're number two, that someone else has done it first, and then we're going to run a pilot study for the next decade to see, to really see what happens. Like, that's kind of our impulse, and I think we can do so much better. I think we can be more ambitious, uh, set goals that are high and that, you know, that, that, that really meet the needs of our community, and then design the policy for ourselves. And I think for me, in the research I've been doing over the years, you know, creative mixed use is really this example of a made in Toronto solution. Like, we've studied 50 of these buildings in this region of mixes between public, private, and nonprofit that uh, are, for all intents and purposes, you would almost never know they, they're there. And they're very local, and they're really brilliant solutions to local problems. And uh, I, I think what we need to do is go from this like creative mixed use as an example, being a last resort to a first best option, and, I, and, and something that we do intentionally because it's the right thing to do. And I think it's the same with many of the strategies that you highlighted as well, that you know, we often do them as one-offs and we need to like learn quickly from what has worked and then we need to scale it up uh, as fast as we so can. So you mentioned some of them and, and I love what you're saying. Let's, let's take Toronto as kind of the case study. What has to happen? And you mentioned some of the things that happen. What else has to happen for us to break through this housing crisis uh, and end homelessness in a city like Toronto? So one thing I think we should be clear on, and I, I, I'd be really interested in your view on this, I think we have two housing crises, actually. Like we have one uh, for uh, uh, people who uh, are employed and have incomes, and the housing prices for either rent or ownership has skyrocketed out of reach for many. And so many people are feeling like who, 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 uh, who, who are employed and have uh, quite significant incomes in many cases don't feel like they can live in this city anymore and in this region anymore. So that's one aspect of the crisis. And then we have a crisis of, uh, of, of people who are facing homelessness where, who's, where really it's, it's a question much more about income, actually, and a question about lack of income and then maybe and then overlay all sorts of other um, uh, determinants of health, whether it's uh, mental health or drug addiction or uh, family trauma. Uh, or other issues and, and and i think you know i think in some ways we sometimes lump all of those under one crisis but we have to actually address them separately and the idea of ending chronic homelessness is going to be a very focused is going to require a very focused effort uh and 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 and, and one that that focuses much more on you know on, on on providing this housing with the wraparound services and recognizing that the private market alone is not going to address uh, that that part of the housing crisis and adding supply, uh, you know, is important for uh, the first part of the housing crisis that I mentioned to, to ideally to bring down prices for those who have an income uh, and are looking for places to live. But for in, in the second part of the crisis for, for homelessness, this is going to require a really sustained 
uh, yeah, I, I like what you're saying. They are separate pieces. This is very complex. And, and unfortunately, many times, uh, and I'm not pointing fingers at politicians. You have so many things that, that are a focus, but you're looking for, give me one or two solutions. And we were talking about homelessness for years. Uh, the government was like, okay. And we got housing first. And they're like, I get housing first. So everything had to be housing first. But that's not the only piece. So now it's got a housing first. It's a prevention. We get it. Um, but, but there's multiple pieces to it. And I've got four years to get this done, guys. Maybe five if I'm lucky. Uh, and, and, you know, so my mandate can't go beyond that. But these are longer terms. Things like homelessness prevention. Prevention takes a long time. Like it's a lot of investment up front to pay off 10, 11 years later, where you're going to get massive results of people not falling, uh, going into it, working upstream. However, many governments are like, well, I need to do something now. And I need the results now because I need to get reelected again. Um, so, so some of the challenges too. You mentioned income. Uh, we just did a, a podcast with uh, Grima from uh, Matri. We're talking that the levels um, of OD, uh, Ontario Works of Welfare have not increased in Ontario or uh, are still below 1995 levels. There's 1995, there's a 21% cut. It has never come back from that. And you think how costs are up. So certainly there's an income piece. I think there's a reckoning too for... Um, how much we pay people as well, like a living wage of $24 an hour. And that coincidentally, I mean, that's what you need to have a one bedroom uh, apartment, right? 24 to $28 an hour you should be making, but there's so many jobs and good career jobs, right? Where we're going to lose people. If we look at healthcare and what's happening there, where right now a nurse is only making a couple dollars an hour more than a personal support worker. Now, listen, we love our personal support workers. We need them, but a nurse is going to school for, four plus years. Uh, it's just a different set of skills, right? And, and so we need to take a look at that. Um, and opportunities for people when, when you know, you see, well, the, the best way forward for income supports is a job. Uh, not necessarily, right? With the types of jobs that are available to people. Um, and we learned that the hard way at Blue Door. We said, okay, you know, we've got to stop putting people in these precarious jobs that are not paying enough to lift them out of poverty and develop something uh, and we matched a need with the construction industry. Who's going to build these houses, by the way? Um, the trades desks really need people. They pay a fair wage. They always have, which is amazing. And it's meaningful work. And it's transferable work. And that lifts people out of poverty, right? So it is very complex in how we look at things. Um, and, you know, in the, the recent data that came out of the census was talking about the fastest growing um, housing structure, like a people, our roommates, people coming together. And then there was multi- uh, uh, generation families, right? And I'm an example of that right now. We have uh, our uh, adult daughter and uh, her uh, her husband are living with us. They both work. They both do well. It's just so unaffordable that, and their original plan was to move in and save up for a house, but as prices rose, and it's good for them. They realized, they said, ownership is not the way forward for us. Uh, but as long as you'll have us, we'll stay here and it works for all of us. We, we love having them here too. But these are all the different things that are happening that are contributing. You're right. You have to kind of target specific pieces and policies are different that affect each each one of these things. Right? Yeah, you know, I, I love how you described even your household situation because I, I mean, on, on one hand, I, I'm sure that your daughter and, and, and family wants to have their own independence and you know feel like they've launched and yet on the other hand like 
there is something nice about living in a multi-generational house and having family very close by in a lot of cultures. Uh, that's really, uh, that's like a really important part of their, uh, how, how they, uh, how they interact and how they, how they raise family and engage with the grandparents. And, uh, you know, my, my kids are quite a bit younger, but I, I think a lot about that, about where will they be and where will they be able to afford to live? And I think, I, in some ways, if we want to be optimistic, I actually think some of the NIMBY sentiments, not in my backyard sentiments, that have made it very difficult for uh, development and infill in particular to happen in some of our Toronto neighborhoods is starting to subside. And, and part of it is because people are looking and saying, well, where, it, where are my children going to be? Like, I'm going to have to go across this entire city to be able to go and see them or they're going to move out of town because they can't afford to live here. Like, uh, you know, it's some of this is altruism and some of this is just like straight self-interest. And I think we're starting slowly, uh, slowly to learn this. But you then see pitch battles like we looked at a we looked we studied a project uh, that was a seven story infill building uh, on a main street. And it, 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 went, it went through the planning process for seven years. Like the, and this this was this was for for a fairly upscale condo. And it took seven years for this project to move for, for a hundred story, seven story, a hundred, a uh, hundred unit, seven story building. And you're just like, if we're going to, if we're going to take seven years to approve every hundred uh, you know, unit building, I mean, it's just like, we're going to be in a real pickle. This is just going to take, we're not going to be able to make the progress we need. And instead you're going to just get huge high rises concentrated. The tall and sprawl pattern is going to persist. Um, so I, th I think we're starting to see attitudes uh, change in this city that, uh, that we're going to have to do something different or uh, the way that we've experienced and the experience that, that people my age have with our parents and, and, and our children's grandparents is not going to be the same uh, for, for Yeah, well, for well said. Um, absolutely. You mentioned something, too, that I think we brought up on the podcast before. People have to realize. So when the federal government says we're going to put, you know, uh, this number of billion dollars into housing, uh, and Adam Vaughn brought this before, it's like, listen, you need all three levels. Of government and and I was corrected. You actually need four uh, by uh, uh, one of our indigenous guests to say you need indigenous people on those tables too. And, and I said I stand corrected. So you need four because they all have to factor in. If you think you, know, you can put the money in, but if the province then stalls it or doesn't isn't on the same wavelength, and then if your municipality planning um, departments are not are taking seven years to approve it, do you know it has that money just sits there. And they'll say, why was this money not spent out of this budget? Well, I, hey, that's beyond us. Like, there's certain things that are in everyone's purview, right? So you really need all three levels or four levels to get together, make it happen. And it's got to happen quick. And we saw probably the best example was rapid housing, right? Like, if, if, if this liberal government right now wants to point to what worked, rapid housing worked, right? And, and it takes a lot, but it can be done. You know, and I would even add to that because I think, again, you talked about the political cycles and uh, the impulse is, you know, four years, let's announce and let's get units built that I can then go on the uh, political uh, campaign trail and say, I, we built X thousand number, X thousand units. What about the operation and maintenance of those units? Like it's, again, housing is like infrastructure. You know, it's, it's not a one-time expense. It has expenses year after year after year. And you know, you can, you, you see this, you can defer for a year and maybe you don't see anything. You can defer for two years. Maybe it's still okay. But if you start to, you know, over time that adds up and the costs multiply. And it's what we were talking about before. You actually were losing units because we deferred 
maintenance uh, for too long. Uh, and we've had some really tragic cases of like what happens when units actually uh, fall into disrepair. Like, yes. I mean, wasn't it just recently like the ceiling on a on a building collapsed? Like that is tragic. That's heartbreaking. And it, it, it it's it's like it's it's such a it's such a like symbol of what happens when you don't invest enough. And so these announcements about uh, the capital costs and these giant uh, dollar figures are fantastic. And moving fast to yeah. build new housing is great, but it needs to be backed up by long-term sustained funding and a plan for operations and maintenance, uh, or we're just going to end up in this same position just with even more housing. That's yeah, and I think Toronto Community Housing got a bad rap, and, and that's not on them. That was poor planning, right, in the past, and then someone else is left holding the bag because you're years behind. And the feds did put some money into uh, that infrastructure a while back, but that takes time. Once you have the money, now you have to get the contractors, work with the tenants, do that, and that could take years, right? So let's do it right from the beginning, if we can, to make sure, and you're right, thinking in the future, yes, it's great to get this all up, but we have to maintain them uh, as well. Hey, listen, it's been uh, such a pleasure talking with you. Uh, you're always doing great things. Anything exciting you're working on now that you want to share? Yeah, we're starting. Thanks for that, Michael. We're starting a um, social purpose real estate accelerator uh, at the Infrastructure Institute at the University of Toronto. We're working with uh, uh, community uh, uh, organizations, nonprofits, typically organizations that own land. Uh, we put out a call for organizations to come into this accelerator to really uh, prototype and then hopefully move forward and accelerate redevelopment projects that bring this idea of social purpose real estate, the, the, the tools and techniques that, uh, that the private sector has used, bring those forward and use and allow organizations, give them the skills that, and, and hopefully pair them with the networks uh, and then ideally the capital down the road to really deliver on their own projects, whether it's uh, a, a homeless shelter that, that is in an old building that thinks uh, maybe they can redevelop and create a really uh, uh, bespoke space or uh, uh, whether it's a, a food bank that maybe can have the food bank on the main floor and something up above or uh, a church that has a parking lot and, 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 and might want to redo something on that parking lot. So we're really, uh, in our case, trying to move from like an acad academics that put out ideas into the world to really trying to be part of the change and work with much more directly with organizations, um, you know, to, 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 to drive, to enable them to achieve their outcomes. And that part's really important. It's, it's, it's the organization's driving and we can uh, sort of support from behind and give all of the, the, the sort of underlying infrastructure to use that word that can help, uh, you know, the capacity and the networks that can help them really realize their- uh, Yeah, and, and I'm so glad you talked about this. We talked about this little offline before we started. And, you know, I look at my organization, uh, we have this crisis, we're trying to work through it. We have exactly what you're talking about, this land and we're trying to develop real estate, but we have no idea where to start. This is not our background. Our background is in social services. We know this is a need. So the work that you're doing and bringing people together, not only are you giving us the tools to succeed, you're introducing us to other organizations that have you know, similar challenges and have creative ways of working through it that we all can share and duplicate. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's the community of practice idea, right? It's the idea that that together we when we learn from each other and uh, and can create the, these new ways of doing it. I mean, we were talking earlier about innovation, and I think this is how innovation happens: is when 
you bring together organizations that, and create a space where they can share uh, and feel like they can learn from each other. Uh, and, and I think that's really what this accelerator program and, and some of the broader work uh, we're doing. So I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, this has yeah, been I'm excited pleasure. for the future. I'm excited for the work that you continue doing. I think I've learned once again, learned so much uh, during this podcast. Thank you for your leadership, the work you do. And I'm sure uh, we'll have you back soon. If you ever have any uh, of the super cool things you're working on, you want to share with this sector, uh, please reach out. In the meantime, enjoy your summer. And thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on uh, the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Well, like I said, every time I have a guest on, uh, I learn so much. And you hear me dropping some of those stats. Those are all for previous podcasts with experts that are out there. And they matter. And it all kind of comes together. Whether we're talking about uh, policy, infrastructure, we're talking about justice. Today, uh, Maddie said something, again, that I really hadn't. You know, when you're talking about ending homelessness, you really have to factor in transportation. We don't talk about that in the sector, right? That's just an add-on, but it should be. And actually think about that uh, in York region, uh, our good friends at the region of York and Housing York, they do think about that. Every new building that they put out with social housing has been on a major transit route. And 30 years ago, when Blue Door, where we are now in East Willowbury, that was built, that was not a consideration. It was, hey, let's get them out of a neighborhood where nimbyism won't happen, right? Um, but they're doing it right now and it shows that people can get to their groceries and people can get to see their families and people can be a community. So cool. Learning so much every week. I guarantee with our guests, you'll learn something new that can help us work our way forward. Until then, uh, we will we will see you next time on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.